Well, it's a funny story. I was a graduate student at the University of Georgia, and I was looking for a major professor for my getting a PhD. And I approached this guy. His name was Bob Johannes. And I was interested at the time in doing salt marsh and some sort of work on the Georgia coast. And he had done a great deal of that. And I walked into his office and I said, I'm, I'm looking for a major professor. And he said, well, that's good because I'm looking for a graduate student. I just got an NSF grant to study coral reefs. I had thought, hmm, that's interesting. I had only visited one coral reef in my life, and that was in Pigeon Key, Florida. And so I, not being a fool, I said, well, that sounds interesting. And so I found myself going to Hawaii very shortly thereafter to do research in Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, which I did for a number of summers. Forget frequently asked questions, common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field, sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Christopher Delia, He's a professor and a dean of uh, LSU's college, uh, Louisiana State University is what LSU is. We're going to talk about aquatic systems and uh, his research surrounding coral reefs and all that stuff. So, Christopher, thank you for coming. Glad to be here. If you would, tell me a bit about your uh, your interest in this. Like, when did it start? You know, what's your, your background? And then uh, we'll talk about your current research. Well, it's a funny story. I was a graduate student at the University of Georgia, and I was looking for a major professor for my getting a PhD. And I approached this guy, his name was Bob Johannes, and I was interested at the time in doing salt marsh and some sort of work on the Georgia coast. And he had done a great deal of that. And I walked into his office and I said, I'm, I'm looking for a major professor. And he said, well, that's good because I'm looking for a graduate student. I just got an NSF grant to study coral reefs. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I had only visited one coral reef in my life, and that was in Pigeon Key, Florida. And so I, not being a fool, I said, well, that sounds interesting. And so I found myself going to Hawaii very shortly thereafter to do research in Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, which I did for a number of summers. Okay. And uh, anything you, you know, in the past that you learned that really cemented it for you, that made it super interesting and something you wanted to work on for a long time? Well, it was, it was really love at first sight. The first thing we did he picked me up at Honolulu Airport, and we drove immediately to Coconut Island, where the uh, HIMB is located, and we put on snorkel and fins, and we swam around the entire island looking at the coral reef there. And I I just knew that I had to be involved with coral reefs from then on. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so how early has it been for you that you've been studying coral reefs now? Uh, since the early 70s. I was uh, uh, actually this... This is the late 60s that I was, no, no, 1970 was the year that we, we first went to, to Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. The subsequent year, Bob and uh, uh, another professor, Larry Pomeroy, led an expedition of 25 scientists to Anawitak in the Marshall Islands using the research vessel Alpha Helix. And then we spent two months there using shore facilities as well that were left over from the atomic bomb testing era. And we did a study was called symbiose of the the metabolic function of the 
coral reef there. And that was a wonderful experience. In fact, I'm, uh, I'm giving a seminar on that very shortly, next week, I think, and in the process of writing a book on that topic. So of the coral reefs you've seen, are there um, differing types? Are they all kind of similar? Like, what's a, a brief overview of them? Well, there's a, a, a big diversity gradient in coral reefs. If you, uh, if you want to see the most elaborate and diverse coral reefs, you go to the uh, Indo-Pacific, northern Australia, in that general area, has a very high diversity diversity maximum. If you go into the to the eastern part of the Pacific, you go to Hawaii and elsewhere, the eastern or central side of the Pacific, the diversity is much less. Similarly, in the Atlantic, the diversity of corals is much less. And there's something like uh, 65 species of corals in in the uh, Caribbean and Atlantic. And it's over 400, almost 500, I think, in the Indo-Pacific. So it's a it's a really big difference. That's not to say Atlantic coral reefs aren't beautiful. They, they certainly are. But uh, for the real Cadillac coral reef, you want to go to the Indo-Pacific. And have you been to coral reefs that have been bleached or that have died? Yes, I have. I have been fortunate to study coral reefs in Australia, in Bermuda, in the Bahamas, Jamaica, and oh, wow, obviously Hawaii, and even the Revilla Tishano Islands south of Mexico. And the coral bleachings are now fairly common, unfortunately. Way back in 91, I think it was, uh, I was asked with two colleagues uh, to do a, a uh, symposium workshop on coral bleaching at the behest of uh, the National Science Foundation, NOAA, and EPA. And we produced uh, the first really comprehensive review and report on that topic. Um, so what are what are some things you noticed when you would go through bleached coral reefs that maybe people, you know, the public doesn't know besides just the, the initial pictures? Like what, what kind of experience was it for you? Well, it's a sad experience because the corals have lost all their color. They're normally uh, basically brown, depending on if they have animal pigments. That that uh, it also adds color. But the brown zooxanthellae, the algae that are in the tissue of the coral, are expelled. And so all the color is gone. Now, sometimes they can recover. Sometimes they can be repopulated with those anthelae. But in many cases, the coral just... So it looks like when you get a coral skeleton that's uh, long since died on the beach, it looks the same as a bleached coral, pretty much. And then what happens after that is when the the coral skeleton is, is no longer covered with coral tissue and it's dead, you find algae overgrowing. So you see a, a very stark difference between a healthy coral reef and one in which there's been a bleaching event. Uh, can you, any of the corals come back from bleaching, or once it happens, they're doomed? I can't give you a percentage basis, but some do, and it depends on the severity of the bleaching event, how long it occurred. Typically, it's caused by a stressor like high temperature. So if it's a prolonged high temperature, and we're talking in Celsius, 31, 32 degrees Celsius, uh, is is generally where we start to really worry about coral reefs, and because there are there corals live very near their maximum tolerance level for for temperature. So, what what are your current research questions about now? Well, I'm not actively doing research on coral reefs anymore. I'm sort of into STEM education because we have a STEM education crisis in this country, and we've got to do something about. It. So that's where my efforts are are, are largely uh, uh, directed at this time. But I'm certainly, I follow along with what's going on in the coral business. And right now, there's a lot of interest, particularly in the Atlantic side, 
in uh, various coral diseases. There's black band, yellow band, white white something, whether I can't remember what it is, but there are a variety of uh, pathogens that cause these things, from ranging from fungi to bacteria to protozoans, and uh, they seem to be increasing, and that is very worrisome. What do you mean the appearance of these are in or around what kind of systems around each or other systems? The black band disease, for example, occurs on the the big massive corals, and you see this this band that that goes across the entire a narrow band goes across the entire coral, and it proceeds a couple of uh, millimeters every day until it eventually takes over the entire coral, and it, it's the same as a bleached coral. It, coral's tissue is dead and and gone. But what is it, a disease or what is it? Yeah, it's a disease. There are different pathogens that, that cause it. I had heard in the ocean, I mean, there's like unbelievable amounts of phages and bacteria. And so I guess, you know, I, I, it's funny. I would think like because it's underwater that maybe pathogens can't get to it, but maybe because it's underwater, it's even more likely for pathogens to get to it. Our studies of uh, viruses, for example, in the sea are fairly recent. Uh, in the last 40 years or so. I remember I was a program director of the Biological Oceanography Program at NSF back in the late 80s. And I remember we started getting some uh, proposals to study viruses in the sea at that time. But before then, there was not a lot known about viruses. Bacteria had been pretty well studied before then, but the idea of bacteriophage, viruses, and all that sort of stuff was not really thought about much in, in those days. Now there's a lot of active work in that. We have a faculty member here in the College of the Coast and Environment who is actively studying viruses. Now most of them are not pathogens. They're not pathogens to, to humans, or so there's not a real concern that you're gonna if you go take a swim at the beach, you're gonna come down with a viral infection. So what what constitutes a healthy coral, and what constitutes the beginning of a problem? Like what what's noticed at the very beginning of an issue with a squirrel? Well. Uh, you you can just look at a coral reef and know that it's a healthy reef. There are algae that are kept in 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 their place. When you have a, a nutrient situation where there's excess nutrients, such as there was the case in Kaneohe Bay in Hawaii when I first made my swim around that coral reef, they had a sewage outfall in the bay, and this this bubble algae, Dictyosphera cavernosa, overgrew the the corals in many places and killed the reef. Likewise, when you have a coral bleaching event, you see an overgrowth of algae very frequently following along. So a healthy reef. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Is a mixture of, of, of corals never more than 50% in most cases, because algae are very important, particularly calcareous algae, algae that produce their own calcium carbonate. But a healthy reef, 
has lots of herbivores that keep the algae in check so that the algae don't completely overgrow the, the coral. So that would be the first thing I would look for. Is does it seem to be a healthy mix of algae and corals? And are the algae not overgrowing the corals? Oh, what, what causes the algae to, to bloom? The, the presence of excess nutrients? That was the cause in Kaneohe, Hawaii. And subsequently, the state uh, was able to divert that sewage effluent to, out to sea and there was no problem thereafter. So that was very good. In other cases, if you remove herbivores or there's overfishing or there's a die-off of the, uh, the diadema, uh, the uh, uh, sea urchin, that can cause problems. So it, it really depends on the, on the individual reef, the location, and the circumstances. So in, in Kaneohe Bay, where you had a, a nearshore reef that was in a bay and had limited circulation, it was very vulnerable to nutrient pollution. In other places in the Caribbean, years ago, we had a, in the late 80s, we had a serious die-off of, uh, of diadema, the, uh, the black sea urchin, and, and, and that caused the problem. So it, it's a sort of idiosyncratic. So where can corals appear? They're, they can be, I guess, very shallow places and very deep places. Like what's some of the ranges, habitats they can be in? Well, it depends what kind of coral you're talking about. If you're talking about the uh, symbiotic corals, which we generally refer to as reef-building or hermatypic corals, they have to be near the surface because they're dependent on light. There's those deli or algae, they're, they're dinoflagellate algae, that produce carbohydrate and amino acids that are translocated to the host and provide the host with energy. And that's, that requires the whole uh, symbiosis to be near the surface of the, uh, of the, of the water. Generally, in the first 100 meters, you get the best growth rate of corals near the surface. And that means corals are also susceptible to turbidity. If the waters become turbid, turbid uh, then the light won't penetrate, and that uh, works against them. There are very deep water corals, but those corals do not have algae in their tissues. And, uh, and they, can, they can appear in much colder waters and deeper waters. Okay, so... Of, of all the corals in the world, how many do you think are known? How many do you think are unknown? Is there any way to gauge that? I think we have a, a pretty good handle on the number of coral species. Of course, using genetic um, technologies these days, we can uh, learn a lot more about what uh, corals are related to what corals, etc. And there's been a lot of research looking at, uh, at, at DNA of the algae and of the corals to try to understand what what strains of algae there are and what the different species of coral are. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm sure we'll discover more species, but I think we have a, a good handle on, on most of them. Is there any point in trying to estimate the total coral mass in the world? Is that even possible, and would that do anything for you? It actually has been done. I think people have come up with the aerial extent of coral reefs, and uh, from that you can interpolate what, you know, what the, the biomass worlds would be. But I'm not, I, I don't have those numbers in the back of my in the back of my head right now, so I'd have to look those up for you. Well, have you ever seen like a top-down, you know, maybe a satellite-type view of corals in a, in a given ocean? And do they form any any patterns that are observable? Like, do they they tend to form in fissures in the in the ocean floor, or where do they tend to go, and why? There are a couple of different kinds of reefs. There are fringing reefs. There are barrier reefs. There are coral bombies, which are chemicals, if you will, and there are atolls. So you, these are easily identifiable from space. 
Great Barrier Reef can be seen by astronauts when they fly over Australia. So that that's easily visible. Coral reefs tend to be mostly near uh, the continental margins, although there are atolls in the middle of the Pacific and, and elsewhere in the Indian Ocean Atlantic that uh, that do exist. So Etowetok, where I spent a lot of time in my early career, is one such atoll. And it's the base of that atoll is called, called a guyo or a seamount that has submerged uh, due to... Uh, Due to subsidence and also erosion, so that that's a, a, a very interesting thing. Darwin uh, was the first one to come up with a, a plausible theory of uh, how uh, atolls formed, and uh, and so that's way back in the eighteen uh, the middle of the nineteenth uh, century that he did that. So we've had a considerable interest in, in in coral reefs as geological features for a long, long time. Back in the in the nineteenth century. Geology was sort of the queen of the of the sciences at that time. They people were just very interested in in how land formed and the history of the planet. There was a lot of debate over over uh, how old the Earth was, uh, and you know geology speaks to that. So so there's been a lot of interest in this for for years and years and years. Quick question: I've seen you know various people create out of artificial materials, you know, like oil rigs, etc. So if a coral reef has bleached and is dead, why can't that be like human intervention turning back around and the existing coral be used as a substrate to recreate the reef? Like what would be in the way of doing that? Uh, the fact that is done. There are a number of people that have uh, operations that grow little cinders of coral that are dead, uh, planted around in, in various locations. The trouble is that there's a massive amount of bleaching and a massive amount of loss of coral reefs, and it's an un, unachievable challenge to to have them all recover. And plus, there are only a few species that they're able to reproduce that way. So you don't get the kind of diversity you would have in a in a normal healthy system. Oh, so what percentage of bleached corals are savable? Very few, only specific ones. I think can't give you an exact percentage, but uh, I think the majority of bleached corals do not survive, and that's that's a problem. Yeah, how do corals start in the, in the first place? Like, um, you know, what's what's the initial starting points of the movie? They go back to hundreds of millions of years, and they've coral reefs have changed a considerable amount of time throughout geological history. Um, they just drawn a blank in the first uh, at the geological time when they had their first uh, symbionts, the zooxanthellae. But again, it goes way, way back. And I mean, but nowadays, do we see any new ones? New ones started from scratch. And what are the conditions necessary to start? Well, that's that's a really that's a really good question because corals generally live in water that's warm, generally speaking, from eighteen degrees Celsius to about thirty degrees Celsius, maybe a little more in at both ends in, in in certain occasions. And uh, the as we see the climate change that's occurring and the temperature of the oceans going up, that means that more area uh, at the high latitudes is available for corals to uh, survive in. So there may be some new coral reefs established in uh, uh, geographical locations where they were very marginal in the past. So, for example, we have you know, off the shore of, uh, of Louisiana and Texas is the, the flower banks, coral reefs, with flower gardens, rather. Not very robust, and they were very marginal, I think, in, in the past. They look pretty good nowadays. A lot of coral cover.
But the at the other end is what I'm really concerned about because once the temperatures start to go above uh, 31 degrees or 32 degrees, even if it's just a short spike of temperature, that is a death sentence for the coral reef. And that's a very serious concern in the future. There are a lot of people that feel that there's a possibility we won't have coral reefs in 100 years or so. I don't know if that's the case. I, I'm not sure that it's that dire, but I think we're going to lose a lot of coral reefs for sure. Yeah. How do they, how do they, um, I know they create a local ecosystem for fish, but what is their role again locally that you've observed in the ocean and then maybe further out? Do they have effects, you know, in a multi mile radius around them or only very locally? Well, that's a, that's a really good question also. They're, they, they provide the basic physical infrastructure of the habitat that all kinds of species, that for that reason, you see a lot of diversity of other things besides corals as well. And so beyond that, the, the, the corals themselves are not a, a, a wonderful food source for things. I think the algae are probably more important. We talk about high productivity of coral reefs in the sense that their so-called gross productivity is extremely high. And that is an interesting problem because despite the fact that they're able to fix a lot of carbon dioxide and their protoplasm from that, there's also a lot of respiration that occurs and consumption of organisms and on the coral reef such that the, uh, the productivity is offset by a large amount of respiration. So the net production on the reef is actually rather low, even though the gross production is very high. So it's a, it's like your your bank account. If you you'd have a lot of money if you didn't spend it. If you're spending it the way the coral reef is for through respiration, then you you don't have high gross productivity or net productivity. What's your mean? Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? I know it's it's you're not doing it right now. You're doing the STEM education, but you know, maybe some of the interesting work you've done. Uh, where can people go? My colleague uh, Giselle Muller Parker and. Clay Cook and I wrote a paper on uh, corals and their algae that is widely used in schools, for example. And I can make that available to you if you'd like. Yeah, what are, just for a quick summary, what were the interesting conclusions in the paper? That's a review paper that talks about coral nutrition, it talks about algae, it talks about the how the, the symbiosis is set up, how how the how reproduction occurs, and things like that. So it's a it's a good general introduction to corals. And it has been quite popular. Yeah, that would be great if we would. Yeah, we can add it to the uh, podcast, sure. Yeah, that would be fun. And also, there are papers out there. For example, I wrote a paper about the Symbiose expedition that I'll also send you. And that was really an interesting an interesting sociological event, if nothing else. 25 scientists together for, for two months is bound to create some very interest, interesting interactions. And we were very fortunate. Everybody seemed to get along well. And we were extremely productive. So, you know, how that happens is quite an interesting story. We had wonderful leadership and just great support from people very far away who got us stuff we needed. If we needed equipment or supplies, they, they would fly it in once a week for us. So it was really, that was great. So I'll get to that paper as well. As I said, I'm writing a book on this topic with a, with a graduate student, and uh, I'm hopeful we'll get that done in the next year. Excellent. Well, Christopher, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Glad to do it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. I won't touch that.